Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and Happy New Year's Eve. As promised, we have a little bonus for you to cap off the year. A dark tale of a not-too-distant future, coming to us from the creative mastermind behind the soon-to-be-released Dark Matter magazine, Rob Carroll. Dark Matter magazine is just days away from releasing issue one out into the world. And to give you a little taste of what's in store, Rob has given us this story to produce and share with you. You can also find additional content over on their website, darkmattermagazine.com. Plus, you can check out subscriptions, swag, and other goodies at their store, darkmattermagazine.com store. Dark Matter serves up science fiction on the darker side of the universe exploring the shadows that lurk in the dead space between stars, and the specters that haunt our infinite futures. They've got some excellent fiction lined up for their inaugural year, featuring several writers you've heard before right here on Tales to Terrify. I highly recommend checking them out if you're into that delightful blend of sci-fi and horror, like I am. Here is just a taste of the kind of tales they offer, penned by the editor-in-chief himself. And stay tuned after the story for a discussion I had with Rob back in the summer of this year, where we talk about the new publication and the state of dark science fiction in general. 
children of the night, join me for Rob Carroll's Violated Terms of Service, first published on the Dark Matter Magazine website. It was midnight now, and a cold fog had taken hold. Dr. Foster, who was stuck in the thick of it and seemingly adrift, shifted impatiently upon his uncomfortable seat inside the tiny rowboat and cursed the way it rocked so terribly beneath him. He brought a cigarette to his lips and lit it with a trembling hand. Do you even know where we are? he asked. His voice was desperate, and this, upon immediate reflection, embarrassed him. He took a drag of the smoke and peppered the ash into the water. Dr. Parsons grunted as he pulled back on the heavy oars. Put that damned thing out. He emphasized the word damned for reasons that to Foster seemed petty. Dr. Foster shot his colleague a wounded look. I smoke when I'm nervous, okay? He took a deliberate drag, just to stick it to his surly critic, but choked when he caught a sudden movement in the water. Gripping the side of the boat with his free hand, while still elevating the glowing cigarette above the splashing water with his other, he coughed violently in the direction of Dr. Parsons. This was not on purpose, but as far as Parsons was concerned, it might as well have been. Damn it, Foster! Parsons exclaimed, turning his head to avoid the indignity. Did you see that? exclaimed Foster, pointing at the water with his trembling cigarette. Something down there was moving! Dr. Parsons slapped the indulgence from his colleague's hand embers flying as the smoke pinwheeled into the void. All I see is an idiot, said Parsons. He pushed Foster backwards onto his seat before the excitable young moron could capsize the small vessel with his flailing. Now grab the lantern and hold it here. Dr. Foster unhooked the glowing lantern from the stern and held it up to reveal Dr. Parsons' old face, glaring back at him. Not there, Parsons growled. Here. He snatched the lantern from Foster's weak, ineffective grip and dangled it over the side of the boat to illuminate the suspect water. Have you taken your medicine recently? Dr. Parsons asked. Dr. Foster shrugged. Yeah, he said, sounding unsure. His eyes were probing the illuminated water for danger. Did you or didn't you? said Parsons. He demanded clarification. I did. When? I, I don't know, like 20 minutes ago or something? I took a half dose when we got here and another half when we boarded the boat. 
Dr. Parsons fished a small vial of black liquid from his coat pocket and held it out to Dr. Foster to take. Here, he ordered. Take another one. I don't want to take another one if I just took one twenty minutes ago, said Foster. Take it, Dr. Parsons shoved the black vial into Dr. Foster's chest. Dr. Foster swatted the old man's hand away. Are you crazy? I'll overdose. You would, agreed Dr. Parsons, if I thought your last dose was twenty minutes ago. I'm not lying, you old lunatic. No, agreed Dr. Parsons, you're not. You're just mistaken. Now take the dose. He shoved the vial into Foster's chest again. Foster felt the chill of cold, objective truth run up his spine. A bit baffled and completely terrified, he cautiously accepted the vial. How long? What do you mean? If not twenty minutes, then how long have we been on the boat? Parsons moved the lantern to search another area of the water. Two hours? He finally answered. Foster's heart sank. You're sure? He asked. The old man nodded soberly. Okay, then, said Foster, sounding every bit dismayed. I guess it's bottoms up. He removed the cork from the vial, but before ingesting the foul-smelling liquid, he paused. But what if you're the one who's wrong? What if you're the one that needs to take this? Parsons slunk away from the gunwale and took a careful seat inside the boat. He spoke calmly, but Foster could tell the old man was unsettled. I know what my nightmares look like, and what's in the water right there is nothing I've ever dreamed up. Foster suddenly felt nauseous. He moved to peer carefully over the side of the boat and into the water. Don't you idiot! Parsons shouted. Foster, realizing that Parsons was right, settled back into his seat. He exhaled slowly in an effort to calm himself. What does it look like? he asked. Wait, never mind, don't tell me. I'll take your word for it. The nightmare is mine. He raised the vial of medicine in a mock cheers to Parsons and shot it back like it were a nip of cheap whiskey. Parsons used the lantern to inspect the water where the creature had been. It was gone. You have a very disturbed mind, said Parsons. I'm afraid of water, Foster said in defense. Do you have any idea the anxiety I'm experiencing right now just being out here? And thanks to you, I can't even calm myself with a smoke. Parsons sighed. He removed a fresh cigarette from his pocket and handed it to Foster. Here, just keep it away from me, okay? Foster nodded his agreement and graciously accepted the gift. He pointed at Parsons' pocket with the tobacco end of the cigarette. I thought you didn't like manifesting things unless it was absolutely necessary to do so. 
Parsons hung the lantern upon the bow and grabbed the oars. I find it absolutely necessary that I keep you from driving me nuts, he said in retort. Foster accepted the remark with a knowing shrug and happily lit the cigarette upon his lips. So what do you know about this Dr. Atwater? Is he really as weird as they say? Parsons snorted. <laughs> Dr. Atwater is the strangest man I've ever met in my life. But I think that goes without saying. I mean, look around you, Foster. What kind of man do you think lives in a place like this? A troubled one, Foster said, mumbling over the cigarette still perched upon his lips. He took a drag from the cigarette and blew the smoke out over the water. They say he went all cuckoo after his wife died. Parsons labored again with the oars. He grunted with each methodical stroke. Who's they? he groaned. Foster shrugged. You know, other doctors in the field, other quantum psychoanalysts. Parsons acknowledged the rumors with a healthy bit of skepticism. I'm sure that was part of it, he agreed. He pulled on the oars and grunted. But I knew him before his wife's passing, and he was odd even then. To be honest, I think her death only amplified the crazy that was already in there. And now he lives here, said Foster. And now he lives here, Parsons affirmed. Foster huffed. Talk about losing yourself and your work. No, Parsons disagreed. This isn't work anymore. He scanned his foggy surroundings with a morbid curiosity. This is obsession. Foster agreed half-heartedly. Yeah, but the engineers that used to be assigned to his project say he's actually quite brilliant. According to them, he made significant strides in the areas of psychosubjectivity before his funding was cut. They said he was this close to solving the tarot problem. Oh, I have no doubt he's brilliant, said Parsons. I knew the man, remember. But I'm also quite sure that he's dangerous. Dr. Atwater may seem normal at times, Foster. But don't be fooled. It doesn't take much for him to become completely unhinged. It's a good thing they sent two PhDs to apprehend him then, Foster chided. That's not like they can send the police, Parsons countered. Yeah, Foster mumbled. That's what concerns me. He flicked the dying cigarette into the fog. Looks like we're here. Parsons turned around to see what Foster saw. Roughly a quarter mile out, the fog had grown light enough to reveal the rocky coastline and jagged pines of the mysterious island they aimed to find. A few hundred feet from the water, nestled amid the moonlit evergreens, was a crumbling old manor house. The house was dark, save for a single lighted window on the second floor and in that window stood the rigid silhouette of a man. Who wants to knock? Foster asked. 
Should you knock, or should I? Don't be an idiot, Parsons scolded. He grabbed the brass knocker upon the door and used it to knock once, twice, three times upon the oak. A few moments later, the door creaked open to reveal a balding man in his middle age, dressed sharply in a butler's uniform. He greeted the pair with suspicion. We're here to see Dr. Atwater, said Parsons. Foster bowed to the butler like a moron. Dr. Atwater is not home at the moment, said the butler. Oh, said Parsons, feigning surprise. Well, we can wait. And without being invited, he pushed his way past the butler and into the grand foyer. Foster, meanwhile, waited for the butler to go in pursuit of Parsons before he, too, slipped inside and quietly closed the door behind him. I'll have you know that this is private property, said the butler to Parsons. You have no right to be here. Neither of those statements is true, argued Parsons. But I wouldn't expect you to know any better, seeing as you're just a figment of Dr. Atwater's imagination. He pointed to a stone fireplace. Is there any way we can light this up? It's quite dark in here. The butler snapped his gloved fingers, and a fire burst to life inside the hearth. It crackled peacefully and emitted a pleasant warmth. The butler then spoke sternly to the rude intruder. And I'll have you know that I am not a figment of anyone's imagination, Dr. Parsons. But I wouldn't expect you to know any better. You've always been quite senile. He's right, said Dr. Foster. He was standing just inside the doorway with an open manila folder in his hands that he had manifested after entering. He pointed to a paper contained within the folder. Says right here, Dr. Alan Merriweather, age 53, employed by Lotus Technologies from 2096 to 2099, terminated in the fall of that year, bachelor's degree from Stanford, master's degree from Boston University, Ph.D. in quantum psychoanalysis, fellowship at MIT, professor at Yale. Foster looked up from a photograph of Merriweather in order to address his partner directly. Guy's legit, Parsons. I know who he is, Parsons grumbled. I didn't recognize him at first, but that's Alan Merriweather, all right. We shared a lab at MIT. What are you doing here, you old fraud? I thought you were banned from quantum psychoanalytics after you went off the deep end. You went off the deep end? Foster chimed, sounding more than a bit surprised. He went back through the stack of notes in the folder. He hadn't seen anything about a psychotic break the first time through. Maybe it was only a minor one and he had skimmed over it by accident. Dr. Merriweather, the butler, just glared at Dr. Parsons, the research scientist, as if daring him to say any more. He did indeed, said Parsons. He called the dean of Yale a deep state sympathizer with... What were the words you used? Oh, yes, a deep state sympathizer with a hatred for all things white, male, and sane. 
slanderous gossip, Merriweather calmly protested. I never said any of that. It's never been proven that I did. The only reason the powers that be upheld the claims was so that they could fire me without violating my tenure. There were emails, said Parsons bluntly. Lots of them. And of all the offensive things he wrote in those emails, accusing the dean of being a racist oligarch was no doubt the least offensive of the bunch. Well, was the dean racist? Foster asked. He was genuinely curious. Damn it, Foster, Parsons exclaimed. Will you just shut up already? Go smoke a cigarette outside or something. Merriweather grinned. I see they finally matched you with an intellectual equal, Dr. Foster. Or is he your superior? What are you doing here, Merriweather? Parsons snapped. And why are you dressed as a damn butler? And where's Dr. Atwater? I know he's here somewhere, so quit it with the lies. Good evening, Dr. Parsons, said a voice from the staircase. The three men in the foyer paused and turned their attention to the shadowy silhouette standing upon the lowest landing of the stairs. I must admit, the shadow continued, I never expected to see you here. I'm still not entirely convinced you're real. I've been having more hallucinations than normal, so I wouldn't be surprised. I think the sleep deprivation is finally starting to take its toll. Are you real, Dr. Parsons? He's real, Merriweather answered. But are you real, Dr. Merriweather? The shadow asked. Oh, come on now, Dr. Atwater, an annoyed Merriweather scoffed. Let's not play this game again. I don't see anything in the case file about Dr. Merriweather experiencing a psychotic break, Foster announced from behind his manila folder. I see now that he was dismissed from Yale, but no official reason was given. Exactly, said Merriweather smugly, as if this was all the evidence he needed to absolve himself of any wrongdoing. The shadow stepped down from the stairs and walked into the light of the fire to reveal a man much younger than Foster was expecting. Dr. Atwater was in his forties, but he looked closer to thirty-five, like Foster. Only the gray hair at his temples hinted at his true age. He was dressed in red satin pajamas and wore a pair of black suede slippers upon his feet. Let's go to the parlor, he said. We can talk more comfortably in there. He nodded at a dark hallway to his right. This way, he instructed. Follow me. A modest fire crackled in the parlor's stone hearth, while the three scientists sat and drank, and the butler, also a scientist at one point, stood and dutifully served them. Foster raised a glass to Merriweather and shook it to show that it was empty. Merriweather grabbed the bottle of brandy from off the drink cart and poured Foster another drink. It was already Foster's third drink of the evening, and they'd only been sitting in the parlor for a little more than thirty minutes. Isn't it weird? Foster blurted. 
Isn't it weird that we can still get drunk in these places? Like, you would think that wouldn't be a thing. He swirled the burgundy liquid inside his glass and studied it with a philosophical eye. After a few more spins, he let the liquid settle and then took another swig of the booze. This man actually works for Lotus Technologies? Dr. Atwater asked. His disbelieving eyes were affixed on the young idiot. He certainly is not the janitor. As a man who used to work as a janitor during undergrad, I take offense to that, said Foster. I hate to admit it, said Parsons, but he's actually rather bright. I would never trust him to run a study, but his paper on the latent effects of prolonged exposure to virtual environments is actually quite good. It's still the most cited article on the topic, even if most of the citations aim to debunk. Don't they always, said Atwater with a grin. He sipped his tonic water mindfully. He stared into the fire to think, and it was during this time that he decided to finally break the pleasantries. Why have you come here? he asked. You know why, Parsons replied. He set his unfinished glass of Chardonnay down upon the coffee table. He wouldn't be needing it any longer. I've broken no laws, said Atwater. Not that the government knows of, said Parsons. But we're not here in the name of the law, said a slightly inebriated Foster. His face had turned ruddy from the booze. We're here because you violated the terms of service on your user agreement, and we've been tasked with taking you home. Atwater guffawed. That's preposterous. Lotus Technologies has never once evicted a user for violating their terms of service. In fact, I've never even heard of them sending warnings. And people violate the terms of service all the damn time. So what's this really about, hmm? Are they afraid of what I might expose if I publish? Dr. Parsons refused to dignify Atwater's wild delusions of grandeur. They're afraid of the ethics violations they would face should they allow you to continue what you're doing. They're afraid of lawsuits. They're afraid of being bankrupted and shut down. The face of Dr. Atwater contorted to appear as though he'd been mortally wounded by Parson's words. Nonsense! he exclaimed. My studies are entirely inoffensive. Tell me, Dr. Parsons, since when did trying to solve for differentials and subjective experiences become a crime? We both know you're not just solving for differentials. Why now, then? Atwater prodded. Why, after all this time, is Lotus just now taking action? I've been down here for, what, three years? Four? It's been seven, actually, Parsons said matter-of-factly. But that's beside the point. Fact is, no one at Lotus truly gives a shit about you or what you're doing down here on your own dime. But that all changed a few weeks ago, when a private investigator phoned a friend on the board of directors and tipped him off to some things. Now, suddenly the board's problem is everyone's problem. 
Trust me, Atwater, you're not the only one who's pissed off about this whole situation. Do you think I want to be here? Do you think Foster does? Do you think the engineers back at home office want to pull an all-nighter while we dick around down here trying to convince you to leave quietly? Dr. Atwater slumped down into his chair and pouted. He stared stoically into the fire. So, go home then. Don't make this your problem if you don't have to. Parsons sighed. You know I don't have that choice. Atwater's eyes narrowed. Why'd they even send you? Why didn't they just unplug me? Or shut down the construct? I didn't ask you to come here and play nice. They can't unplug you because that would be murder, said Parsons. His tone said something more like, You know all this, so stop playing dumb. Atwater fumed. I am on the verge of quite possibly the biggest breakthrough in our field since the scientific validation of dual mind theory and the invention of mind flow rerouting, and you want me to just walk away? To just walk away and what? And then without warning, he leaned forward in his chair and started shouting at the fire. Let the god-fucking-damned board of god-fucking-damned directors take my work. Not a god-damned fucking chance. He snatched his glass of tonic water from the table and hurled it into the fire. The glass exploded inside the hearth. Foster had ducked down into his chair to protect himself from any flying glass, but Parsons barely flinched. Three people have died in this construct since you took over here, Atwater, Parsons explained. Three. Lotus can write off one death as an accident, pay the fines, settle out of court. Two deaths. Okay, that's getting a bit more suspicious, but nothing a good team of lawyers can't handle, especially when the victim was an addict with multiple prior convictions. But three? And the third victim is the nephew of a congressman? Be reasonable, Atwater. Did you really think that they wouldn't come for you eventually? That boy was an idiot, and his death was no fault of my own. None of them were. Merriweather can attest. It's true, said Merriweather. The boy was an idiot. He was a legacy at his father's alma mater, for God's sake. He couldn't possibly have graduated on his own merit. In hindsight, I should never have hired him on as a research assistant. But good help has been hard to find these days. Why are you doing the hiring? A confused Foster asked. Aren't you the butler now? Merriweather glowered at the young scientist. Mr. Merriweather serves multiple roles, said Atwater. Parsons leaned back in his chair. The board is willing to cut you a deal, he said. You agree to come with us tonight. If you leave peacefully, they'll make sure all this goes away forever. They'll shut the private investigator up with some hush money, and they'll tell the feds to get bent. But they're only willing to do all that if you agree to play ball. I thought I made myself quite clear already said Atwater. 
I'm not leaving. The board can kiss my ass. Merriweather, show our guests to the door. Foster quickly moved to down the last of his brandy, but Merriweather stopped the glass with his hand and then took it from a defeated-looking Foster. He helped Foster up by his collar and shoved him in the direction of the door. That way, he commanded. Parsons, meanwhile, rose slowly to his feet, but instead of heading to the door with Foster, he turned and looked down at the seated Atwater, who was breathing fast and heavy as he continued to stare furiously into the fire. At least let us stay the night, Parsons pled politely. We can't be unplugged until the morning. The station chief already went home for the night, and you know the boys in engineering won't let us out of here until they get the stat chief's signature on the request forms. And don't say they should just page the stat chief. The man is a bastard. He'll make it hell for everyone if they ring his phone at this hour. Atwater said nothing in response. He just stared soberly into the fire. Parsons frowned. Are you really going to make us sleep out on the boat? Foster can't even see the ocean without wanting to shit his damned self. To everyone's surprise, that's when Merriweather chimed in with his own two cents, which to Atwater was barely worth a penny. Actually, sir, it might not be a bad idea for them to stay the night. Perhaps if we extend them this courtesy now, they'll be more willing to do us a favor come morning. What do you say, Parsons? Dr. Foster? No, Atwater shouted. They leave now. That's my decision, and my decision is final. Why does everyone feel they have the right to question me this evening? Assholes, all of you. And with that, he got up from his chair and stormed out of the room. And bring me my damned medicine, he shouted from down the hall. Dr. Merriweather the butler escorted Doctors Parsons and Foster to the front door of the manor house. But instead of opening the door and directing the two men to vacate the premises, he instead stopped the men and held a gloved finger to his lips to signal for them to keep quiet. Dr. Atwater would be furious if he found out we were talking like this, he whispered. But when he gets this way, gets, shall we say, a bit wound up. He tends not to think things all the way through. That's when I sometimes step in, and from where I stand, I see no reason why we all can't cut a deal that will work out nicely for everyone. I mean, really, Dr. Parsons, Dr. Foster, you're scientists, for God's sake, not repo men. Since when does the defense of a dissertation qualify you to do their dirty work? It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. And it's one of the many reasons why I left Lotus in 99. Fired, Foster said flatly. Excuse me? You were fired from Lotus in 99. It said so in your file. The brandy was still strong on his breath. Y yes, said a befuddled Merriweather. Technically... But I was on my way out already. They only fired me to save face. Ah, said Foster. 
He was not trying to be condescending, but that's exactly how it came across. Merriweather closed his eyes and took a deep breath. Anyway, he continued, I think it would be best if you both spent the night here, inside the quiet comfort of House Atwater. Parsons narrowed a skeptical eye. And in return, he asked, you go back and tell that know-nothing board of directors that you found no wrongdoing here, that the accusations against Dr. Atwater were all lies, and that he has broken no terms of service. Tell them that upon further review you recommend they leave Dr. Atwater be, for he's not causing any harm here, and evicting him would be more trouble than it's worth. Tell them that it is your professional belief that the deaths were all accidents and that any allegations that say otherwise would be quickly proven false. And if they're still not convinced, tell them that Dr. Atwater has threatened to file a civil suit should they continue with the forceful eviction from this property, to which he is more than legally entitled. And furthermore, that it will be during the discovery phase of this lawsuit that attorneys will conveniently find some very incriminating evidence involving multiple members of the board and their close relatives. Parsons was quick to point out a flaw in Merriweather's plan. And what's to stop us from taking your deal, heading home tomorrow, and then telling the board the exact opposite of what you just proposed? Merriweather smiled wryly. One day at a time, Dr. Parsons, one day at a time. I think we should take the deal, said Foster. Smart young man, said Merriweather with a grin. Are you certain he's not your superior, Dr. Parsons? Parsons glared at Merriweather. We'll take the deal, he said flatly. Excellent, said Merriweather. Let's go quietly, then. We don't want Dr. Atwater to learn of what we're doing. That would be good for no one, least of all me. Dr. Foster leaned against the open bedroom window in a pair of borrowed satin pajamas and nervously smoked his cigarette. When not taking a drag from the cigarette, he held it outside the window so as not to allow the room to fill with smoke. He didn't want Dr. Atwater to happen by his room and be alerted by a strong smell coming from inside. He was taking one last drag when a soft knocking came upon his door and caused him to jump with heart-stopping fright. He quickly tossed the still-smoldering butt out into the yard and quietly closed the window shut. He then made himself small beside a large mahogany wardrobe so as to keep out of sight should someone open the bedroom door to inspect. The door slowly creaked open. Foster, a voice whispered. It's me, Parsons. Foster cautiously leaned out from his hiding place beside the wardrobe. The room was dark, so he couldn't quite make out Parsons' features, but he had already recognized the voice and that was good enough for him. He stepped out from his hiding spot and motioned nervously for Parsons to close the door behind him. What do you want? Foster whispered. We need to talk, 
whispered Parsons. What about? Foster whispered back. About our plans, Parsons whispered. About how we're going to convince Atwater to leave. Even in the dark, Parsons could tell that Foster looked confused. What? I thought we were heading home tomorrow. Our deal with Meriwether. Oh, come now, Foster, Parsons quietly harangued. You didn't think I was being serious, did you? I only agreed with Meriwether's position in order to buy us some time. Oh, said Foster, sounding more than a bit disappointed. I really thought we were going home tomorrow. We still can, whispered Parsons, if we accomplish what we need to tonight. Come morning, Atwater will have no choice but to follow our every command. I don't think I like this, whispered Foster. Too bad, whispered Parsons. You chose to work in industry, Foster. If you wanted the easy life, you should have gone into academia and worked your way towards tenure. Well, it just so happens I have a friend quite high up at Princeton, Foster snapped back. So maybe I'll just phone her up when we get home and see if I can get a job by next semester. Won't pay as much, but who cares? Meriwether is right. This line of work is bullshit. Parsons had no desire to argue. Get dressed, he whispered, and meet me downstairs in the foyer in ten minutes. Oh, and don't forget your medicine. And without providing any further explanation, he took to the door and left. Twenty minutes later, Foster descended into the foyer to find Parsons pacing nervously about a medieval suit of armor that was on display beside the extinguished stone hearth. Upon seeing Foster, Parsons stopped his pacing and hurriedly motioned for Foster to come his way. Foster quickly checked the room for prying eyes, then darted across the unlit entryway to join his colleague next to the twelfth-century battlements. You're late, whispered Parsons. You're lucky I'm even here, Foster whispered in retort. He then cut right to the point. So what are we doing? He nervously scanned the room for spies. Dr. Parsons manifested a manila folder in his hand and held it out in front of Foster's wandering eyes so as to draw the man's attention back to the task at hand. Follow me, he said. He led Foster down the east hallway to an unlocked study and the two men went inside. Parsons gently closed the door behind them and then lit a nearby lamp. The only way we're going to convince Atwater to come back with us is if we can prove he was at least partially responsible for those deaths. And if not all three, then at least the senator's nephew. Congressman, said Foster. What? He was a congressman's nephew. Whatever, snapped Parsons. If we can nail him for the death of the congressman's nephew, he would be foolish not to take the board's deal. Okay, said Foster. So how do you plan to do that? Parsons held up the folder again. 
After Meriwether showed me to my room, I decided to look back through Atwater's case file to see if there was something I had been missing. He opened the folder and flipped through the papers in search of a certain page. Upon finding it, he walked over to Foster and held the folder open in a way that allowed both men to see the documents inside. He pointed to a specific section of the text. It's not much, but it turns out that it is exactly what I was looking for. This is from three years ago, roughly fourteen months before the first casualty. Allow me to read it to you. Parsons took the folder back, cleared his throat, and read the section aloud. Lotus Technologies refutes Dr. Atwater's claim that the company took deliberate action to degrade the quality of his construct and hopes that he would self-vacate the space. In accordance with the contract Dr. Atwater signed on December 6, 2098, he agreed to the expressly stated possibility that degradation of his construct could occur, and that in the event that degradation did occur, he would have no right to file claim. Lotus Technologies is not responsible for system degradation due to subjective incompetence, interference, or incapacity, and is only responsible for system degradation of the objective experience if said degradation occurs within the initial 18 months of occupancy, or within the 24 months extended warranty purchased upon signing. Foster then pointed to the bottom of the page. And then there's a footnote. It says, in accordance with Section 5.14 of the Lotus Terms of Service, under heading Limitation of Liability. Dr. Foster sighed. He wished dearly to be back in bed. I don't understand. What does this have to do with anything? I thought the whole violation of the Terms of Service thing was just a bit. Some bullshit we'd say to get him to give up. Parsons was more than happy to explain. It was, and that's why the terms of service complaint documented here is not what interests me. I am interested in what the terms of service complaint was referencing. At first, I thought nothing of it. I just assumed Dr. Atwater was fed up with the way his place was generally gone to shit. Foster eyed the cobwebs, the peeling wallpaper, the patches of black mold. That's an understatement. But, Parsons continued, Atwater was actually being much more specific than that. He flipped back a few pages and pointed to a number of specific lines in the notes. On three different instances, he specifically references his wet lab as the space most suffering from degradation. And over here, he references decaying plates of assays. Dozens of them. So? Parsons flipped to the back of the case files to reveal a floor plan of Atwater's house. According to the official floor plan filed with Lotus, this house doesn't have a wet lab. I mean, sure, maybe one of these rooms can serve as a simple research lab, but not a wet lab and not a lab that would run the large number of assays Dr. Atwater claims to be working with here. A rush of adrenaline slapped Foster awake. You're not suggesting what I think you're suggesting, are you? I mean, I get it. Atwater's crazy. 
but he's not that crazy. And besides, do you really think he could create a subjective subspace even if he wanted to? The concept is barely theoretical. And if, by some chance, someone, somewhere, somehow succeeded at creating something like this, you and I both know they didn't live long enough to report their findings. Exactly, said Parsons. I think that's how the three lab assistants all died. Atwater was using them as guinea pigs to test the integrity of his subspaces. Foster shook his head vigorously. No, no way. The V-space industry pours millions of dollars into subspace R&D every year, and they can't even get a subjective construct to hold for more than a microsecond. Think about it, Parsons. The brightest collection of minds in the damn field can't stabilize the subjective coefficient long enough for lightning to strike. And somehow, Atwater, all by himself, has been subject testing for almost two years? No way. Parsons pressed his young colleague. Yes, but Atwater did claim to be on the verge of a generational breakthrough. Maybe he's telling the truth but it still doesn't make sense. Atwater is quantum psychoanalyst, not a computer engineer. He wouldn't know the first thing about solving for the subjective coefficient, or what to do with the solution if he did. I'm sorry, Parsons, but I've got to say, this is ridiculous. I think you need to go back to bed. We both do. We'll get some sleep, and in the morning we'll head home. We'll tell the board of directors what Merriweather told us to tell them. Or not. You can tell them the truth for all I care. And then those rich assholes in suits can figure out what they want to do next. But our work here is done. Or at least mine is. Foster turned to leave. But Parsons caught him by the wrist and stopped him from going further. He looked Foster dead in the eye and spoke with a humorless intensity. Atwater did create a working subspace, and I can prove it to you. Foster yanked his arm free. He sighed and rolled his eyes. Fine, prove it. The husband and father of two young children wanted to tell Parsons to piss off. But the research scientist and early career ladder climber kind of wanted Parsons to be right. If what Parsons said was true, it would be a huge discovery for the both of them. But still, he wasn't going to hold his breath. Parsons walked over to a bookcase and searched the middle shelf for one volume in particular. He found the book he was looking for and then pulled on the spine as if attempting to remove the book from the shelf. But instead of pulling it free, the book just snapped back into place and the bookshelf slid slowly open to reveal a secret stairway leading down into an unlit basement. How the hell did you know about that? Foster asked. Parsons held up the manila folder. It's all in here. This passage is part of the licensed floor plan on file with Lotus. It's what's at the bottom of these stairs that's not. The two men descended the stairs to find a narrow tunnel that terminated in a dead end. They walked to the dead end and stopped there. Did you remember to bring your medicine? 
Parsons asked. Foster began to feel a bit nervous. I did, he replied. Good, said Parsons. Take a dose now. If I'm right, you're going to need it. Parsons unmanifested the manila folder and then manifested a vial of medicine. He shot it back without a second thought. Foster reluctantly followed his colleague's lead. According to Atwater's movement tracker, he spends a disproportionate amount of time in this very spot, despite there being nothing here. According to the tracker, he stands in this very spot for hours, sometimes even days at a time. Odd, right? Maybe he sleeps down here? said Foster. Maybe this is where he goes when he's depressed and wants to be alone. It wouldn't be the weirdest thing about the guy. Exactly. There are too many logical explanations, which means the computer would never flag the behavior for investigation. What with privacy laws and all. Atwater knows this, too, and I suspect it's why he was too lazy to cover his tracks. Tracks to where? To the subspace, said Parsons. He then pressed his fingers against the dead end and watched with a mixture of fear and excitement as his hand disappeared into the wall. Foster looked on in amazement. Parsons looked back at Foster and grinned triumphantly. He had been right. Dumbfounded, Foster could only manage a disbelieving chuckle. Satisfied with the results of his test, Parsons removed his hand from the wall, and Foster jumped back in fright. Parsons' hand was no longer human. It was a fibrous, tree-like thing with green fungus growing in and around all the cracks. Parsons' first instinct was to desperately shake his hand free of the foreign matter. But after a number of failed attempts, each attempt becoming increasingly more desperate, he was finally forced to accept that his hand was now a fungus-infected plant. Uh, don't worry, said Foster, sounding more than a bit uncertain. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. None of this is real, after all. He was horribly transfixed on Parsons' mutant hand. It had started to sprout leaves and birth insects that skittered up the old man's arm in a frenzy. Body horror, said Parsons, turning his hand over to study the demonic growth from both sides. It's one of my greatest fears. Well, then you seem awfully calm about it right now, an excitable Foster exclaimed. His own eyes were growing wider with terror. I think I'm in shock, said Parsons. He blinked the confusion from his eyes. I don't get it. I took the medicine. The subspace on the other side is obviously corrupted. You were right. This is probably how those men died. But holy shit, Parsons, I'm worried you're about to join them. The mutation just keeps getting worse. It's all the way up to your neck now. We need to get you out of here. Parsons just stared dreamlike into the middle distance. I took the medicine, he murmured, 
My subjective influence on this place should be null. This nightmare shouldn't be happening. It can't be happening. Parsons, it's heading down to your waist now. Oh my god, that's sick. Stop what you're doing right now, shouted a voice from behind them. The two colleagues turned to see Dr. Atwater and his butler, Merriweather, standing at the bottom of the secret staircase. Merriweather looked ready to rush Parsons and Foster if it came to that. Atwater, Foster cried. You evil bastard, don't just stand there. Help us, damn it. Parsons is going to die. Look at him. Get away from that man, Merriweather shouted. He's dangerous. Foster looked over at his dear colleague. Parsons, your legs, they're rooted to the ground. Parsons had almost fully transformed into a decrepit old tree at this point, and the only reason he shouted was to cut through Foster's crazed screams for help. Foster, tell my wife I love her, okay? Tell Louisa I love her. Foster stopped shouting for help, and he looked calmly into Parsons' eyes. He smiled, and then he burst into hysterical laughter. You're fucking nuts, Parsons. Fucking nuts with a capital N. I never should have listened to you. I never should have let you come down here. I should have stayed in bed, and tomorrow we'd be home. He frowned. I have a wife and kids, for Christ's sake. My son. God, he's only five. This will devastate him. The last bit of Parsons that was still human was his mouth. Tell her. It groaned. And with that, the bark grew over the lips and fused the mouth shut. But not before a handful of insects escaped from the yawning maw in mass. Parsons was dead. Foster looked anxiously toward the wall. Dr. Foster, Atwater called. Don't do it. We don't need any more trouble than you've already caused. He was starting to make his way quickly over to Foster. What he intended to do once he got there was anyone's guess. Is he dead? Like for good? Foster asked in reference to Parsons. The Parsons-shaped tree beside him was now crawling with bugs. Foster wanted to close his eyes and wake up from this dream. He closed his eyes and reopened them, but nothing happened. I guess, yes, he's dead, said Atwater. Stubborn ass, this didn't need to be his problem. Merriweather grabbed Foster and slapped a handcuff on the man's wrist. He then slapped the other half of the handcuff upon his own wrist so as to tether he and Foster together and prevent the young scientist's escape. Whatever you intend to do to me, shouted a worried Foster. I suggest you give it up now. If Parsons is dead, the engineers back home know, and that's all the evidence the board will need to send the feds here. You're done for, Atwater. You had your chance to get out of jail free, and you pissed on it. I hope it was worth it. I violated no terms of service, Atwater shouted angrily. They have no right to shut me down. Merriweather, take him to the parlor. 
We'll discuss what to do with him there. Foster found himself once again in the parlor, sitting in the same seat he had been enjoying a glass of brandy only a few hours prior. Only this time, his arms were handcuffed behind his back, and his feet were bound together with layers and layers of duct tape. Atwater had pulled his chair over to the opposite side of the coffee table, nearer to the fire, and had angled the chair so that he could face Foster's direction as if the two were about to play a game of cards. He stared intently at Foster, with fingers clasped in front of his mouth. Merriweather stood dutifully by his side. After a long stare down, Atwater broke his gaze and manifested something in his hand. It was rectangular in shape and looked to be a small box of some sort. I assume you're familiar with the tarot problem, said Atwater. Foster nodded. Some say you almost solved it, back before your funding was cut, back before you decided to hide away in here. Atwater opened what was now obviously a box of tarot cards and removed the stack of cards from their case. Well, they're wrong, said Atwater. I didn't almost solve the tarot problem. I did solve it. Merriweather grinned proudly. Foster responded with a tormented laugh. You really do think I'm an idiot, don't you? The tarot problem doesn't have a solution. Anyone with even a bachelor's degree in psychomathematics can tell you the same. The stories about you are fun to believe, Dr. Atwater. They're even more fun to tell, but we all know they're not true. Merriweather, if you please, said Atwater. He handed the deck of cards to his butler and relaxed back into his seat. Merriweather held the deck in his hand as if awaiting orders to deal. Atwater, meanwhile, manifested a vial of the black medicine and held it up for Foster to see. Why do we take this? he asked. Why do we take the medicine? Is this a game to you? My dear Dr. Foster, would you like to learn how I solved the tarot problem or not? Foster felt the same twinge of intellectual curiosity that caused him to follow Parsons into that cursed basement beneath the study. I apologize, said Foster. I do want to know. I do. We take the medicine to block our subjective experience from influencing the construction of the environment. And why do we do this? Foster shrugged. Lots of reasons. To maintain a sense of objectivity while doing case studies, to do A-B testing, to act as control. You know what I'm asking, said Atwater, his eyes narrowed. Why do we really do this? Foster laughed to himself. He thought about telling Atwater to fuck off. To prevent nightmares, he said. To prevent insanity. Atwater barely grinned. Think of a card, he told Foster. His eyes pointed to the deck of cards in Merriweather's hand. The hanged man, 
said Foster. Okay, and I choose death. Now, Dr. Foster, according to the tarot problem, who do you think is going to be right? Lotus systems use the hierarchy method, said Foster. When the system recognizes competing subjective requests, it ranks each requesting user by highest paid control of the space, weights those users by percentage, and then randomizes the outcome as determined by those percentages. The user that's paid the most money to be in the construct usually wins. So, under normal circumstances, I'd wager you'd win. But I'm a quantum psychoanalyst assigned to an active case. So, I can deny any request you make. And in that scenario, I win. Do deny my request, then. I do. Merriweather, deal the first card. Merriweather dealt the top card face up onto the coffee table between the two men. It was the death card. Foster did not look impressed. There are a number of valid reasons as to why that would have happened. Besides, that's not even illustrative of the tarot problem. We're not finished yet, said Atwater. Now, tell me what would happen if you and I were equals in the construct, or if the construct was, for example, a tax-funded public space, which, due to regulations, must be egalitarian, with no favor given to any one particular user. Foster shifted uncomfortably in his bounded state. The handcuffs were on far too tight, and they were really starting to hurt. The default method, then. The system recognizes competing requests, weights all outcomes within a probability set in accordance with a number of variables, and then randomizes the results. And the null method? All competing requests are denied and no answer is given. But only miserable bastards build a construct with that method employed, which is kind of why I was surprised to learn it wasn't being employed here. Atwater ignored the barb. The utopian method? All subjective requests are awarded, even competing ones, which creates a logical fallacy and a breakdown of the system. Hence, the tarot problem. There is no way for us to both guess a different card and both be right, even if we're equal in the eyes of the system. Pick another card, said Atwater. The tower, said Foster. And I pick the devil, said Atwater. Merriweather, deal the card. Merriweather dealt the card to reveal the devil. That's more like it, said Foster. I win. I knew I would. So you think you picked the devil? Atwater asked. I don't think I picked the devil, said Foster. I know I picked the devil. Atwater looked up at Merriweather and exchanged with him an impish grin. You see, my dear Foster, the terrible tragedy of my great discovery is that no one will ever know I was right. I'm confused, said Foster. I'd expect nothing less of you, said Atwater. 
But while the world will never know of my genius breakthrough with the tarot problem, I can still build upon my success to make a name for myself in subspace pioneering and the solving of the subjective coefficient. Two things that no one could deny should I succeed. Now tell me, Dr. Foster, why do we only take the medicine in systems governed by the hierarchical method? Because the system allows for complete subjective control in the absence of competing inputs. Unfortunately, that includes both dreams and nightmares, and the nightmares are much more common. Would you agree that it's a major flaw of the hierarchical method? I would, said Foster truthfully. You see, Foster, we are in need of a better system. We are in need of a system in which people are freed from the yoke of both objective and subjective oppression. We are in need of a place where all people live in a blissful eternity of their own collective creation. We need to reject both the soulless life of isolation and the prison life of competition. But to do that, we need to be made ignorant of our differences and accepting of our lack of control. But acceptance is antithetical to a paradise of one's own design. So we must instead devise a system that convinces people that they are happy precisely because everything is within their control, even though, in reality, it is not. And my guess is you've created that system. No, but I'm close. I'm oh so very close. Parsons was right. I did create a subspace. At first I created it for my own creative whims. I thought up a wet lab, complete with hundreds of different assays, and tested to see if I could replicate proven results without the aid of an objective framework. The answer, if you're wondering, is I couldn't. But then it occurred to me. Why was I aiming so small? I had created a subjective subspace, for God's sake. I should be testing the very limits of man. And that's when I recruited Merriweather here to join me. With his background in psychomathematics and my existing breakthroughs, nothing could stop us. But all we needed then was a test subject a young lab assistant willing to do whatever it took to make a name for himself in this field. So Parsons was right. They did all die in the subspace. No, said Atwater. They died in the Lotus build. They died in the hierarchical system. That's what the board of directors found out. And that's why they're suddenly so worried. I've violated no terms of service, Foster. Lotus Technologies did. I don't understand. My utopian subspace worked. All my assistants reported the same findings upon return. Nirvana, they'd say. Pure heaven. Eternal bliss. But then came the tragedy. Every time, the same result. Within moments of returning... Their worst nightmares would manifest in a way that was unstoppable, just like what you saw happen with Dr. Parsons. Their minds had been so used to pure freedom 
pure, unbridled joy, and they couldn't cope with the return to a world opposite of that. The nightmares returned like a cancer that had grown stronger in the absence of a healthy immune system, and they took over. The medicine was powerless to stop it. You should have just told the truth, Foster admonished. You should have just cooperated after the first accident. Your inability to let go of your damned ego led only to more needless death. You're a monster. Atwater sighed. Perhaps, he said. But all great scientists are pariahs of their own time. Why should I be any different? You're not a great scientist, Foster said with a mocking laugh. You're a lying fraud. Merriweather, said Atwater. Yes, Dr. Atwater. Do you remember the first plan we had talked about? Merriweather tried to hide a grin. I do. I've made my decision. We shall go with the first plan. After our business with Dr. Foster is finished, we'll move on to cleaning up the rest of this mess. I expect we'll be getting a visit from the feds soon. Most likely, Merriweather agreed. Atwater turned his attention back to Foster. My dear Mr. Foster, here is what I've decided. As you probably suspected already, I can't possibly let you go home. For Christ's sakes, Atwater, I have kids. And I'm sure they'll miss you dearly, said Atwater. I also can't let you stay here. I wouldn't want you getting loose or somehow finding a way to escape. And I can't just kill you, because that would make me a murderer, and I do not want to be that. So instead, I've decided on a compromise. How you respond to my compromise will solely decide your fate. After we're done here, Mr. Merriweather is going to take you back down to the basement and you are going to be sent into the utopian subspace of your dreams. It will be absolute bliss for you. Really, it will. But the only caveat is, I can never come back, said a gut-punched Foster. You have been listening, Atwater exclaimed with pleasant surprise. Oh, you are much smarter than a janitor, aren't you? Foster flicked the condescending bastard off with his eyes. But while the sentiment of your deduction is correct, it's not technically the truth. You don't have to stay in your dream world forever, explained Atwater. I don't know why you wouldn't want to, but just in case you don't, you can leave any time you want. But if you do, well, only you know the nightmares that await you. Burn in hell, Foster spat. Rejoice in heaven, Atwater replied. Merriweather, take him away. Hold up. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Uh, good. Whirlwind, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, I bet. I can imagine that's a lot of work, planning and launching a new publication. It must have taken up a lot of time over the last few months, trying to figure out all the logistics. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, when we were just starting out the inception of it, I never would have thought it would have grown this fast. And not to say that it's huge or anything, but it has grown at a quicker pace than any of us had expected. Figuring it out as we go is some of what we've been doing. A lot of it was pre-planned, but, you know, for example, the print issue. Um, We never thought this would come that fast. One of the quotes I've been thinking about a lot recently is the Ray Bradbury quote about writing stories. He said, sometimes you have to, you know, just build your wings on the way down, jump and build on the way down. And that's kind of what I think we're doing. You know, I wouldn't have it any other way at this stage in the game, of course. So were you initially just thinking an online magazine? Start with that and slowly build out from there. Was that the plan? Yeah, you know, a digital edition was always in the mix. Uh, We knew from the beginning that we'd be able to offer it for devices. Part of my background is in design, and I even did some design for a publishing house way back in the day. So uh, building books and eBooks is in my experience. So we knew we could do that. But the print, obviously, there's a lot more logistical kinks to figure out and Luckily, we've had a lot of help along the way, people reaching out or we've reached out to them. And, you know, between the five of us, we have a good amount of experience within the broader industry of content creation that really helped expedite that print edition. It's mostly a family affair. It was my idea 
And the first couple of people I went to were my brother, Eric, and my cousin, Phil. Everyone kind of does multiple roles. So all five of us are editors in the sense that we read, review. We need at least two or three yeses to accept. It's not just one person's opinion. We really want to come together. Um, but Eric, my brother, is a history and news broadcast. He, he's been a, a news producer for daytime and evening news for over 10 years now. Um, he's worked for NBC, Fox, CW affiliates. So he's got a lot of uh, technical experience. And then my cousin Phil is actually a, an editor for television out in L.A. Uh, he's currently, his big project is Fear the Walking Dead is what he's working on right now. And uh, he's done a lot of smaller side projects here and there. He's also working on, I believe, I wish I remember the name of it. It's a new Netflix show with Hilary Swank. He's working on that. And so he's got a great uh, technical mind for this stuff too. So they're going to work together on the podcast. I've, I've given them full control over that so I could focus on some other things. Rounding out our group is my cousin Lucy, who is just a great creative director. She's worked for a number of magazines, nothing sci-fi related, but large ones like Teen Vogue, Tatler. So she's pretty well versed in publication and marketing and the creation of that publication. And then the last one, Chris is just, he's a longtime buddy of mine who is just the biggest sci-fi enthusiast you will ever come across. He uh, does a lot of the reading. His background is in computer science and information technology, but he's a great, and I use this term lovingly, he's a great outsider voice, you know, someone who hasn't spent his career in the creative world. And he's just a fan. And I think that's so necessary when you're trying to appeal to a broad range of readers. What do they like? What do science fiction fans? I mean, we're all fans as well, but we do approach the material a little bit differently than just a pure science fiction fan would like Chris. That's a pretty robust, diverse array of people in terms of interests and experiences and skill sets. Sounds like you've got a great team for building a magazine like this. It also sounds like everyone has day jobs that keep them pretty busy, too. Uh, what's that been like, trying to balance everything? It must be a lot of evenings and weekends, late hours. Yeah, yeah. You know, I truly believe that this project could not have happened at any other time. This idea has been in my mind for a long time. It's just a, a passion project I've always kind of kept stored. But with the pandemic and um, a lot of us are now working from home. We did have, you know, that free time after hours that, you know, let's make the most of it. And that's when I approached everyone. And I said, you know, I have extra time. I've been working in from home since uh, March. Uh, let's try this. And you're right. It is 12 to 14 hour days right now. Uh, some days, not every day, but it's worth it. It was born from the time we're living in. So... How has that worked out? What's your process look like for seeking out stories? Did you just toss out a call for submissions? Or have you been sort of courting specific authors and headhunting specific stories you've been interested in? It's been a two-step process so far. And you know, when I first came up with the idea, or first decided to act on the idea, I have a friend who runs a small literary magazine up in Wisconsin and I reached out to him and, you know, he consulted with me and he said, you know, in the beginning, make a professional ask to some writers, short story writers that, that you enjoy that are already in the space and start out that way and then try to pick up some steam from there. So by the time you open your general submissions, you're not flying blind, so to speak. 
And so I uh, sent out uh, some emails to some short story writers that I enjoy, like Ray Naylor and Rich Larson, Octavia Cade were some of the first to sign on with us. And they were all kind enough to respond and say, yeah, we'll write for you. And from there, you build a reputation, I would say, like, okay, we're established that we're serious. You could work with us. We're professional. And then stage two was our submissions opened on June 1st, and now anyone could submit. And so now it's just reading submissions and discovering that new writer is just as fun as I think it was to sign some of these uh, established names in the space that we never thought we would sign right away. And we do have a couple of writers that we signed recently that maybe have one or two small publications or even zero that we're incredibly excited for. And I think that's really fun to find like someone who is just starting. Yeah, that's awesome. Helping to not just showcase authors who are established, but, you know, helping to build that community. Finding that, you know, who's that unknown person who's going to submit that story that just blows you away and then helping them get their footing. That's a pretty awesome way to enter the industry, you know, for them and for you guys too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things as someone who likes to write myself, um, it feels good knowing that you were able to help that person along. I don't want to overstate what an editor does for a writer's career. The writer is the content creator. They're the main force of their career and their art. But, you know, it is nice to be that person that, you know, gave them that first little nudge into, into the arena, so to speak. I will remember those uh, first writers fondly. So do you work together with writers or do you only accept finished, polished manuscripts? And have you received any stories that you've thought... There's a ton of promise here and offered some, I don't know, coaching and support to help get the story to where it needs to be. That has been one of the uh, the things we've talked about in our editors meetings is uh, the short story space is a little different than, for example, working for a publishing house with a prospective novelist in the sense that for novelists, you can give developmental edits. So you, you could work to craft the novel a little bit better. Short stories are more kind of are they already crafted or are they not? With that said, I've reached out to some authors that I gave them some development edits and I go, you know, if you're willing to work with us, I don't want to tell you how you should express your art, but these are some things we've noticed. And every time the writer has been extremely receptive to that and a couple of them, we've signed them because they were willing to work with us that way. But you're right. There are some times when, I mean, you know talent when you see it or when you read it. And sometimes it's just like, ooh, this is just, it just needs a tweak or two here. And you don't want to let that person go. And you know, like short stories aren't really the avenue for development edits, but we've tried that and it's worked every time. So when you say short stories, uh, you know, what kind of length do you usually look for? What's, what kind of word count? Yeah, word count right now, we're looking for uh, one to 5,000 words. So that pretty much constitutes either flash fiction or a pretty decent sized short story. We would love to go longer. I personally am a huge fan of novellas, but we do have issue budgets. And now with the print magazine, we'll have a page budget as well. Obviously, we're talking about prose fiction mostly, but you know, is Dark Matter going to include any other types of content too? Yeah, poetry, art, that kind of stuff? So every issue will have a cover artist 
that we've commissioned, it will either be a reprint that already exists or we'll commission a new piece. Interior, actually our first issue has some artwork, Arula. She's also a writer. She's written in Clark's World. We also do have some poetry signed. We're not accepting poetry submissions yet, but we are moving in that direction because we did have a lot of support and requests for both poetry submissions and poetry to be available in the magazine. And then online, we'll have uh, reviews and interviews. We don't know if that's going to translate into the actual issues, but our website will have uh, author interviews and we'll have science fiction book reviews. A number of authors have already sent us some work that they would like us to take a look at, and we're doing so right now. And then we are in the very early stages of talking about short science fiction comics in the interior of the issues. That sounds awesome. So lots of variety for readers anyway. Um, obviously, science fiction is a pretty big passion of yours, and I would guess for the other members of the team too. Uh, what drew you to science fiction to begin with, especially dark science fiction? Science fiction, uh, I was a small kid in the 80s. And if you look back at that time, 80s science fiction movies, even uh, cartoons for children were very kind of out there. But I think that is really what started me at a young age loving the genre. Uh, I don't know. I can't tell you why it connected with me so much. Uh, for example, I loved Star Wars as a child. My first adult novel I, I read uh, was Jurassic Park by Michael Creighton. Like, I just couldn't put it down. So it just connected with me when I was younger and never really left. Now, from a more, I guess, pseudo-intellectual standpoint, why do I like science fiction? I really think science fiction is an outlet for us to process the complexities of modern life. And I think there's a reason that even though it's a relatively new genre, meaning 150 years or so, but in the big scheme of things, relatively new, uh, and, and it's gaining in popularity because so many things about modern life, uh, the intersection of these things, the intersection of dreams and realities, of, of technology and culture, of fears and hopes. And I know other art does that as well, but I think you add that aspect of the science and the technology, and it really is a uniquely modern art form. And that's what I love about it. And, and dark science fiction, you know, there's two answers to that question, why dark science fiction. One is really, we wanted to carve out our own kind of niche within the science fiction market. And my favorite things are the darker variety and the humorous. And I, I think that actually makes sense. You know, tragedy and comedy are the two great forms of drama. So part of it was just carving out that niche. Like, what are we going to do that's slightly different that people would come to us over all the other great content out there? But the other side, I think, is dark science fiction is any form of dark art is very important. It allows us to explore our id, uh, like the shadow side of society, the shadow side of a person. It's very important to stay in connection with that. It acts as catharsis in times of hurt, and it's a reminder, a warning in times of peace. These are the paths that we don't want to tread again. You know, people have asked me why dark now when the world is dark. And I think, well, what better time for people to, especially artists, to express that pain and that hurt to seek that catharsis than right now? We also do accept comedy as it states in our submission guidelines. It has to be, you know, a darker satire type comedy. But we've accepted some pretty funny pieces, I think. So I think there's going to be a nice mix. It's not going to overwhelm people where they're going to close the issue and just feel depressed. <laughs> They'll just have some things to think about. Uh, 
that's great. Honestly, I love the interplay between styles and genres. I think a lot of my favorite stories seem to happen when the genres bleed into each other. Science fiction and horror especially seem to have just such an intriguing relationship. Sci-fi can be so hopeful and optimistic, but on the reverse of that, when it turns dark, it can get really dark. Yeah, you know, the first thing that pops in my head is the Alien franchise. That great blend of science fiction and horror. I think they go so well together because they're both just this really great way to process our fears. Like, that's what horror is. You know, it's, it's just a way for us to look our fears in the eye and, and, and laugh at them or meditate on them. And you're right. Uh, a lot of science fiction does not approach it that way. It could approach it from a more hopeful perspective. But I think when you want to go dark with science fiction and process those fears, well, yeah, the horror element just comes naturally. So what are, what are some of your favorite authors and stories? You know, either some of your all-time favorites or even more recent ones you've read. That's actually uh, an easy question in terms of my favorites of all time. It's a three-way tie, and I think it will always be this way. <laughs> a Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, it just clicked with me when I first read it. I think it's a... It speaks so great about generational memory, the evolution of our species, where we're going. I love science fiction that weaves uh, science and theology together, and that book does it really well. The next book is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. My mom grew up loving that book. This is one of the books she had to read for school, and I read it when I was you know, in junior high, and for some reason it clicked with me. And the same with Three-Way Ties, I mentioned earlier, Jurassic Park by Michael Creighton. It will always, always have a soft spot in my heart for just being that first novel that really captured my attention and my imagination. And then uh, for anyone out there that's looking for a great short story in science fiction, I'm sure a lot of you have probably read it, but uh, The Machine Stops by Ian Forster. It's uh, written way back in 1909, but it pretty much predicted the isolationist aspect of the internet that we uh, sometimes find ourselves in today. So what's the best way for listeners to support Dark Matter magazine? You know, to sign up and find out more about you. Yeah, the easiest way uh, is obviously our website, darkmattermagazine.com. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, Twitter is probably where we're the most active. Also, if you are interested in getting updates about subscription news or new author signing news, submission news, you could sign up for our emails on our website. And you'll also get content packaged in a newsletter as well. Can you give us a little sneak peek of what's inside the first issue and what can we expect from it? The first issue is uh, always going to be special to me. Every author in the first issue was someone we reached out to. Our general submission portal hadn't opened yet and we're trying to hit the ground running. (laughs) So we really didn't have too much time to wait around for some of these things. So these are authors that I had identified as authors I liked reading already. So to have them be so willing to take a chance on this completely unknown project, I feel very grateful for that, uh, very blessed for that. And I just think uh, something to look forward is there is, I believe, a little bit of everything in we have four issues completed so far in terms of our content is locked in for next year. And I think every issue, I can honestly say, has a little bit of everything. We vary not only the topic of the stories, but the way these authors approach dark science fiction. 
Some of them approach it from a very literary standpoint. Some of them you just read it and you're like, man, that was a fun, that would be an amazing radio play. Some of them structure it like a more traditional three-act omnipresent uh, narrator structure. And some are just doing really creative things with letters and epistillary. It's really cool. You're not going to see the same story twice. Let's put it that way. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Rob. Um, you know, I'm excited for the first issue to check it out. Is there anything else, though, you'd like to add before I let you go? You know, just, uh, I guess, one more time for your listeners, darkmattermagazine.com is the website. And if you like Tales to Terrify, which it, I'm assuming you do if you're listening to this, I think we'll have some content that you'll also enjoy if you want to uh, check us out. That was Rob Carroll editor-in-chief and creative director of the brand-new dark science fiction publication, Dark Matter Magazine. Check it out at darkmattermagazine.com. Thanks for the great story and for chatting with us, Rob. And to you, children of the night, join us again next year as we summon hopeful spirits with more Tales to Terrify.